Welcome to Women in the Arena podcast, the podcast celebrating women doing extraordinary things in plain sight. I'm your host, Audra Egan, and our mission is to elevate the value, strength, and resilience each woman brings to the world. Without further delay, let's go ahead and start the show. Welcome in, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me again this week. This week, I am with a real-life rock star. That is right. I am with an amazing woman that has changed the way music is viewed around the world. This week, I am joined by Jennifer Batten, and she is this amazing guitarist that has this list of accolades that might take me 10 minutes to get through, but I'll try and bring it down to like a minute and a half. First of all, she's been playing guitar since she was eight years old. She has toured with Michael Jackson on three different tours. That is the Bad Tour, the Dangerous Tour, and the History Tour. She has also played on stage at the Super Bowl with him in 1993. If you guys aren't impressed yet, hold on. She also toured with Jeff Beck. She has recorded with him, and she has three albums of her own. She's also an award winner. So in 2016, she received the She Rocks Icon Award. And then thereafter, she was inducted into into the Guitar Player Magazine's Gallery of the Greats. I told you, I'm with an amazing real-life rock star. It is my pleasure and my honor to introduce to you Jennifer Batten. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to the show. Thanks. My pleasure. Let's, let's have some fun. Let's absolutely have some fun. So hold on. Let's let's jump into it. So eight years old. How did you decide to pick up the guitar at eight? And I mean, and let's not forget, guitars for women are not necessarily uh, encouraged. So how did you have the bravery to go, I want to play that? You know, it was, it was really uh, a triple factor. And one was my dad especially was a big music lover. And must have had thousands of jazz records. And any time he was home, uh, that was the backdrop. Always music. So he he loved it. So that was the backdrop there. Um, my sister got a guitar before me, and I was very jealous. So that was a motivator. That was probably the prime motivator. And also at the time, the, the Beatles, it was the British invasion. And uh, I remember sitting there with millions of other people when we only had three channels to choose from, watching the Beatles for the first time on the Ed Sullivan show. And it was just magic. It was just a, an explosion of energy that everybody wanted to be a part of. And anytime a new single would come out, we would take our 45s to our neighbors and play it over and over and over. And when they did a, a new album, we, we would memorize it at every little inch of the covers. You know, it was just kind of ingrained in our brains. So, I begged my parents for a guitar, and it was very strange at the time, especially back then in, I don't know, in the 60s, mid-60s, I guess, um, and I got an electric guitar, and most kids get an acoustic guitar because, you know, if you get an electric, then you have to get an amp, and my dad already had an amp because he played guitar, although not professionally, so it was a, it was a music-rich environment, and it, it was encouraged. 
I think that's phenomenal that your dad, instead of saying, you know, let's have an acoustic guitar and you can be a singer songwriter kind of thing, which was, you know, starting to be the, the genre at the time, he gave you an electric guitar. And for, for me personally, there are a couple of women that stand out that are guitarists that change my outlook outlook of music because you didn't see that very often. Thank goodness for you ladies, because now that's way more common. But who did you have to look for? I mean, there, there wasn't a role model of a female with an electric guitar that you could say, yeah, I can do that. So who yeah, did you look to? I didn't really think about it that we're missing a female player. Although I will say early on, there was a band called Fanny that was on uh, all the TV shows. So I did see an all-female band. And God only knows what that did subconsciously. But it was the music. And it wasn't a big deal that all the lead guitar players were men. I just listened to the music and wanted to be a part of it. So how did you get started into the business? You went from playing a guitar at your friend's house, at your parents' house, and then you decided, no, I, I think I want to do this for a living. How, how did that journey start? Well, uh, so I started, I got the first guitar when I was eight and I started lessons right away uh, out of the very basic books, learning the first three frets of the guitar and learning how to read and then the family moved when I was nine to California. I ended up with a, a folk teacher that was in a, a band called Up With People. And so I learned a lot of finger-picking techniques there and at some point got an acoustic guitar. Then the family moved again, and I ended up with a rock and roll teacher. So, you know, it, it was really great. I loved it. And, and when you're that young, it's not like, I want to learn this or that. It's whatever the guy has to show you. And I would do my homework and be eager for more. So, um, and then in my early teens, I got into blues. I, I don't know how I got into it. It was probably a teacher that turned me in that direction. And I used to take my weekly allowance that my dad would give me and ride my bike down to Warehouse Records. And they had what was called cutouts at the time, where the albums that weren't selling that well, they would cut a chunk out of it. And that was in the discount bin. And because they were cheap, I could get a bunch of them. And so I, I started jamming along with B.B. King, John Lee Hooker, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee. And my dad took me to see Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee at a, a place in San Diego. And when you're young, seeing live music like that just makes a massive impact. So I was on a trajectory to just keep learning and learning. And then I heard Jeff Beck on the radio and it was all over. It was just, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it, it was more advanced than anything I had heard. And uh, it just resonated with me and millions of others because that, that music was from the Blow by Blow record, which went multi-platinum and it was the biggest selling instrumental record for many decades. So it was just onward, onward, onward until a, um, uh, the Musicians Institute started up and that's where I really got an ass whooping. <laughs> so, so got, how did go ahead. how did you enter into you go from this mind blowing education where you're literally just soaking everything up as a, as a sponge and you're taking every lesson that is coming to you in all the different uh, variations of very different styles? But how did you get go from that being a student to being a performer? I mean, I guess you're never stopped being uh, a student, but but 
how did you make that transition? Yeah, I skipped over that. I, I do recall a moment when I was writing music and I was 12 years old and I had this ethereal moment and I asked my mother to come in my bedroom and I turned out the lights and played this emotional song, which was probably a piece of crap. But um, And I announced to her at that time that I wanted to be a professional musician. And the only reason I remember it is because her response was, well, honey, that's a very competitive business. And when you're 12, that doesn't mean anything. It's like, so that's what I want to do. And there, there's many times getting my ass kicked and, you know, canceled flights and broken guitars that I think <laughs> I only listened to her. So uh, I I always wanted that. Uh, so I just did things to, to bring that to me uh, as soon as I was able to play with bands. And that was later than usual because my mother wouldn't let me go out and play with strangers. So I, I didn't. Yeah. Gosh, I think my first gig wasn't until I was 21. What so, was that? Do you remember what the what sure. your first gig was? Yeah, at that point I had graduated from Musicians Institute, which at that time was only a guitar school, so it was GIT. And I was into jazz, and I found a fellow jazz lover, and we used to sit together and play uh, jazz standards. And we decided, okay, let let's do this live. I think we made twelve dollars and fifty cents each <laughs> at some hippie club. <laughs> and I remember that so well. I mean, it's traumatizing to do your first gig, right? And it was so comfortable when the two of us were just playing at his house, reading through this stuff. And all of a sudden we have an audience and I'm still looking at paper. And I was just very conscious of how boring that must be to look at. So then I started getting deeper in the music and memorizing stuff from there. So how... How did you know that things had started to change from this this little club, you know, made $12 an hour, or maybe even $12 the whole gig? How did you know after doing that for a while that things were starting to change for you, that this was actually a real profession and not just something that you were you were hoping to do? Well, I never thought of any alternative, honestly. And there, there was a band in San Diego named Pearl, P-U-R-L, that opened for uh, Lee Rittenauer, who at that time I, I was really into him. He was a big fusion guy along with Larry Carlton and, and some others in the late 70s, early 80s. And I knew that it was a local band. And I thought, man, I want to be in that band because they were doing exactly what I wanted to do at the time. And as, you know, as fate will have it, I, I never even said a word to anybody about it, but within a couple of weeks, they called me out of the blue because they needed to replace their guitar player. And it, it was so crazy because I I had this jazz guitar and I was into jazz and I showed up and they had changed their format from fusion to cover band stuff. They were doing the police and Pat Benatar and all the stuff that was on the radio at the time. And I show up with this jazz guitar that just did not fit the scene and it's amazing they still took me on. Um, so I stayed with them for three years and did a lot of music during that time. We we did a, a lot of pop cover stuff, but then we had gigs, uh, fusion gigs at dinner clubs. And we also did a couple of weddings, which were traumatizing because trying to <laughs> please three or four generations, you know, you get little kids up to grandparents and <laughs> Purple Haze didn't go down so well in the beginning. <laughs> you are in this amazing band that 
you aspired to be in and you find yourself there. You said you were there for three years. Mm-hmm. What, what was your next move? I mean, did it just sort of evolve organically or did you have to hustle and look for your next place? You know, I think when you're in that young, you're just in the moment. Like, this is my band and it's forever. And of course, when you're young, things change really fast. And the thing that triggered the change was um, we started thinking about doing originals. And as soon as we recorded three originals, that, that's usually when the band breaks up. You know, it's like, <laughs> I want this, I want that. It, and egos get involved. But what happened was the the bass player was from L.A., and he wanted to move back. And it seemed like as soon as he moved back, he got a, a tour with Johnny Rotten uh, when he was had his band Public Image. And, you know, we're going, oh, shit, he leaves and goes to L.A. And he, quote, unquote, made it. So we trotted up to L.A. We all moved one by one. I lived in his garage for three months before I got my own place. You know, we were hippies with no money and just did what we could and when I moved up, I got a, I was trying to get enough students to live off of, and that, that took quite a while. And in the meantime, I was a security guard from midnight to eight. So you just kind of do what you do to hustle to make things work. And uh, I just put my name out and ended up, gosh, by the time I got the Michael Jackson gig in 1987, I was playing out with five different bands and teaching six, seven days a week. So it it was pretty pretty full-time, just immersion, because that's what you do. So what was that like, speaking of Michael Jackson, what was li- was it like getting that phone call that, hey, we want you to go on this tour? Well, it's it's kind of funny because they never told me I had the gig. The call that I got was basically Michael's impressed with the audition. Can you come down and play with the band? And also, can you take a year and a half off? And I said, take me anywhere for any length of time. Yes. And I went down and played with the band, and it was just day after day after day. Nobody sent me home. And I would stay up till the wee hours working on the music and making sure I had the parts correct. And, in fact, Greg Fellingaines, the musical director, he was always late in coming to the tours because he had other things going on. And, honestly, I don't know if it was so much for the bad tour, but the other two tours, they, they would call players at the last minute. So everybody had to cancel all the other plans that they had. And so Greg came in at least a week late, and I remember showing him the form of Billie Jean. You know, (laughs) he's this musical genius. He can, as long as he hears something in his head, he can play it on the piano. And I met his mother when she was in her 80s. She came to a show and said, yeah, he was picking songs off the radio when he was three years old. So that's it. So. Yeah, being able to to show him <laughs> what, what was going on with the forum. I mean, he soon took over and was probably the, the greatest uh, musical director I could have hoped for because his ears were so big. If anybody made a mistake or anything, he could hear it. And he was really kind about guiding us along. And he knew that I was green and the other guitar player, John Clark, was green and there's a lot of situations where the musical director can be a total ass in that situation. And if they don't like something, you're fired and get new people in immediately. Um, but it was a very loving environment. So I was really lucky. 
And that was on the first tour, the bad tour, which was three years, three years, was it? It was a year and a half. Year and a half. half. Yeah, 87 to uh, 89. So you're on this tour. It's your your first big tour. Yeah. Uh, What was it like? I mean, you were all over the world with, at that time, the biggest musician in the entire world. Yeah. What is What's that like? That sounds, just saying it out loud sounds mind-blowing. It was just exciting, exciting as hell. And I I had a lot of trouble sleeping in the first weeks of rehearsals to the point where I went to a doctor to get sleeping pills because it was really affecting me. And he thought I was a crackhead or something. He's going, oh, really? Trouble sleeping? And I said, really? No, this is the situation. I got the best gig in the world and it's so exciting. I can't sleep. So you know, I took the pills for a week or so and turned, got straight from that. But it it was the most amazing thing in the world because most tours, it's so expensive to keep bands on the road that if you have a day off, it's going to be a travel day. They're going to make use of that somehow. But Michael, God bless him, he'd been touring since he was five years old and had reached such a popularity where he didn't have to tour or didn't have to play every day. And so we played two or three days a week, and we had plenty of time to really see where we were at. We'd you know, show up in Geneva, and everybody would go for a walk and get their Swiss Army knives, or we'd be in Dallas, and everybody would go out and get cowboy boots. And that first stop in Europe was Rome. And we spent an entire day going to the Forum and another one going to the Coliseum. And we got so spoiled. At one point, we're going, ah, oh, do we have to work today? <laughs> <laughs> I got plans. <laughs> I I got things to do. I got people to see. I got places exactly. to go. I got spaghetti to eat here. Yeah, it was a paid vacation is what it was because I loved his music anyway. And on that first tour, is there a favorite spot that you had? Was there a favorite show that anything that stands out in your memory that you're like, oh, this is, this yeah. is it? Yeah, I remember there was a... Uh, God, it's been so long. I'm starting to forget the name of it, and they've changed the name of it. But there was an outdoor amphitheater south of L.A. that we played that the sound was just so rich and wonderful. Um, Normally, we would play stadiums, and the sound just kind of goes out. You got 50,000 people out there, and you you don't really hear any sound back except for what's in your monitors. And the way the field was, there was plenty of seats, and then – I think there was in the States, we did smaller shows. So maybe 18, 20,000 people. And there was a hillside that people sat on and just something about how the sound hit me was really great. And of course the Super Bowl that was a, one of a lifetime experience that I will never experience again. So it it was just a a really, really exciting day. And there was, there was others. I'm sure if I sat and thought about it, Sometimes it's really special just because the way I happen to feel that day. Well, you mentioned Super Bowl, and at the time of this recording, the Super Bowl is in a couple of days. And it yeah. happen, happens to be here in Arizona. Oh. And and it's, you know, and Rihanna happens to be the halftime show. So what is it like being there? Because everybody's watching you around the world. Yeah. And it's not just in that stadium, it's televised. Yeah. So what what does that feel like? You have millions of eyes on you. Yeah, well, back then, I think it was 92 or 93, uh, it was before YouTube. 
So nobody was thinking about it's going to be archived forever. Um, it was exciting because it was different from our regular shows. We made medleys of songs so there could be more songs in there. Um, and we rehearsed specifically for that. And I, I remember many things. I mean, everything was compartmentalized, like the band worked on the music. And then when the show started, something caught my eye and I look over and there's an impersonator popping out of the scoreboard in smoke. I wasn't aware that was going to happen. And then the other side of the field, the same thing happened. Um, it, it was it was just the most exciting thing in the world. I didn't know the, the kids with the cards were going to be there at the end. So it's kind of like I was the audience as well as one of the performers at the moment. But the thing I remember most was the rehearsal of getting the stage out into the field. Because you only have the time of a couple of potato chip commercials to to get a stage built. And so there was five or six different sections of the stage. And these muscle guys had each section. And the leader would say, go. And they would haul ass with each of their parts, get to the center of the field and connect them together. And then the band would enter. And honestly, in 10 years of playing with Michael Jackson, it's the only time I felt he was nervous because it's an enormous amount of pressure. Nothing can go wrong. And if it does, it's forever. There's no fixing it. And in fact, there's one, a, a few brief moments where he and I are together and there's fog. Like when a, you have a show outdoors, the guy that is shooting the fog has to gauge the wind. And he kind of overdid it for the, for a few seconds. You can't see either of us, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to have to go pay attention. I'm going to have to go in onto YouTube and find that because you're, you're, you're the girl standing next to him in the guitar solo. I mean, yeah. you're, you are it. I mean, that's, I, that blows my mind. Just like I said, picturing that and thinking out loud that, you're the one that was standing next to him and the spotlight was on YouTube right there for everyone to see. Now I'm going to have to YouTube it because I want to see all the smoke and see <laughs> what happened. And that, that was his choice. I, I think I was like a, a special effect for him. You know, I did not have that two foot hair when I joined the band. And <laughs> when I auditioned, there's, you know, back in the eighties, Hair and looks were such a big thing that people would get hired on what they came in with. And I was just a stupid guitar nerd with glasses. And, you know, I did not have that kind of look by a long shot. And luckily, he had been in show business so long that he liked what he heard musically and he knew he could transform me. And in fact, he hired an artist to paint up um, pictures of all of us on stage in three different costumes with these really wild looks. And then they would hire makeup artists and wardrobe people to make the pictures come alive. So uh, I was his creation. And there's so many times where you can see the stage is dark, the spotlight is on Michael, but you can still see my hair because it's white <laughs> and it reflects off, off the spotlight. And it was big. Admittedly, it was a, it, you had some big hair, but you know what? It was the 80s. Everybody had big hair. I had big hair. Yeah, it was a requirement. And that look took two and a half hours a day to put that together. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Was that all your hair or was there wig extensions in there? Or did they just tease the whole thing up and just put a whole lot of Aquanet in it? 
the, the, the spray was called Stiff Stuff. Stiff uh, Stuff. It, it depends on the tour. On the bad tour, it started out where I kind of had a mohawk, although, you know, it wasn't shaved on the sides. It was kind of greased back. And then over time, it kind of tamed out. And I had, it was all my hair, except in the back, they had what was called wefts, where hair, like real human hair, was sewn on this length, and it would be braided into my hair with these little tiny braids. Um, and there's about six of them. And it kind of hurt. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of had to be tight because it was going to grow out over time. And so every month, um, the Karen Faye was the was the person she had to take them all out and dye the back of my head and sew them back in. It was a process. But by the end on the history tour, it was a, a wig, thankfully. I mean, it looked like hell. It was... <laughs> It looked like an S&M character from hell. But you know, at that point, I go, okay, this is theater. It's not about me. It's about a presentation. But having a wig, and there was a leather mask that the wig was attached to, I mean, that came on in five minutes. So that part was positive. So it started out as beauty is pain, and then it ended up with a wig, which is convenient. Thank God. You didn't have to sit there with getting those braids probably sewn into your hair at some yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, boy, I tell you, I, I have breathed so much hairspray in my life. They're going to open me up when I die and just have a science experiment with my lungs. Oh God. I, you know, any of us that lived through the eighties, we all, we all had an experience yeah. with hairspray. Uh, I try not to touch it unless I absolutely have to, because I think I've breathed in a lot too. Um, you had mentioned Jeff Beck earlier as one of your idols, and we have lost him weeks ago, literally weeks. What was it like for you to get invited to play with one of your earliest idols? I mean, that must be mind blowing. It, it was mind blowing. It's not anything I ever thought was possible, in in part because you know, he was the pinnacle of what I saw as guitar and still see. Uh, but for almost all of his career, he played with keyboard players. That was always the backdrop, whether it was Max Middleton or Jan Hammer or Tony Hymas, uh, Jason Robello, you know, all these master musicians. And so when he, he called me to play, I thought, wow, you know, I'm just going to pee myself right now. And in true Beck form, you know, he, he actually called me first to record. And then five years went by. And I thought, well, I, I know what it's like to be inspired in the moment and say things, and then you move on to other things. But I had seen him a couple of times in that five years when he was on tour. I would see him backstage, and he'd always say, we're, we're going to play. And I always thought, well, it's because I'm in your face that you're saying that. <laughs> but he called me up. Um, he had a tour booked of – Italy and he wanted to put a new band together and uh, do smaller venues to, to get us tight. And it was crazy because he had never played with me before. I'm thinking, how can you have that much faith in me without ever being in the same room playing? But by that time I had two records out and he went by the faith of the records. And I didn't tell anybody I was up for the gig. Cause I thought, man, if this doesn't work out, it's going to be really embarrassing so I I kept mom and I had a I had a session 
lined up in Milan, Italy that I was going to fly to. And I booked some extra time to go to Jeff's house. And I learned most of the guitar shop record and went to his house and forced an audition on myself by playing in his presence to make sure he wasn't completely bonkers. (laughs) (laughs) That, That night, you know, I, I don't know what time of day I got there, but I did a bunch of playing and probably had dinner with him. And then his wife starts bringing whiskey up at midnight. That's oh, when it started. That, that's when things start to really ramp up when you bring out whiskey at midnight. And Everybody knows what happens after that. When there's whiskey and Jeff Beck is offering you whiskey, you don't turn it down. And I had a flight the next day and I had to do a session and I was, I was not in good shape. <laughs> I don't regret it for a minute, but it was rough. Oh my gosh. So you got this touring experience with him. How different is the experience with touring with Jeff Beck versus Michael Jackson? Two very different genres, two very different environments. Still, they're both these these, uh, icons in this industry. So what is the experience like in both spaces? It's 180 degrees different. With Michael, uh, he's a well-known perfectionist, and he wanted things to be the same and perfect every night. It's pop songs, um, and you can't just say, hey, let's play this song now instead of that, because everybody has their cues. There's costume changes. There's pyrotechnics, which uh, are very dangerous. So everybody has to know where they're going to be on spa- stage, and there can't be any anything screwing up. So we played the same show every night. Um, the only variation was when he gave me solos. Th- those were open solos so I could play what I wanted. Uh, and then with Jeff, it's the exact opposite, where he doesn't want it the same every night. He he wants to be inspired because he's an improviser. So anything we can do to take a song in another direction would be exciting for him and fire him into a, a new zone. Because that, that's a lot of pressure to be an instrumentalist and hold an audience's attention for an hour and a half. And there's not many people that can do that. And Jeff was king of it because he, he was so well-versed in so many different genres. Uh, through his career, he put out records that were rockabilly, uh, hard rock, really, really emotional ballads. He covered uh, Nessun Dorma, which is a... And Aria, you know? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was all over the map. And his last record, he befriended Johnny Depp. And they were goofing around in the studio. And Jeff laid down some stuff on drums and then went to sleep. And when he woke up, Johnny was had recorded himself singing over it. And, you know, that was enough for Jeff to go, bam, we're doing a record together. And he did a record called Emotion and Commotion, where he had the aria in it and a lot of really deep ballads. And after that, he somebody said, you got to see this band called Bones, Rosie Bones and Carmen Vanderberg. Um, and he was really excited by what he heard and saw. And bam, he's doing a record with them. So he's just all over the map. And his goal in life was to be a, a self-professed, un, unpredictable bastard. And he succeeded. <laughs> but did he he help you grow? I mean, I know that that must have been a challenge every single night 
to follow, first of all, an icon, and if he's constantly changing based on his his inspiration, that must have been a, a challenge for you to keep up with him, basically. Yeah. And yes, I grew by leaps and bounds. Absolutely. I mean, for, for starters, his first idea of a band was going to be Terry Bozio and Tony Levin, who played with King Crimson and Peter Gabriel. And I assumed there would be a keyboard player there. And he rented two days at SIR in New York. And I walked in and I'm waiting for the keyboard to show up and it never did. And he had so much faith in me to cover the harmony that he wasn't bothered. And I thought, man, this is not going to work. <laughs> so uh, I went to a trade show in Frankfurt after that. And lo and behold, there, were, there was a company at the time called Axon, a German company that came up with the world's fastest triggering guitar synthesizer system. And I go, man, the timing is wonderful. So I walked out with an endorsement in that. And I dug really deep into guitar synthesizer so I could trigger those lush pads that had been on his records. Um, I will say that machine did not work out. It was full of all kinds of glitches and the sounds were shit. So I ended up with all rolling (laughs) gear like a week before we, we took off, but I spent a ridiculous amount of time programming that stuff and trying to come up to par with what was needed in, in that, um, and, and it was it was actually it took a little pressure off because you don't need another guitar player on stage with Jeff, honestly. So I was really happy to do that. Um, but he did have me do solos too, trade solos with him. And I honestly, when I got the gig, here's the story. I think his manager had asked how much money I wanted, and at that time I had just gotten a new manager, and I said, "Dude." don't charge him a lot. This gig means so much to me. I would just polish his boots to be on stage. And it turns out the manager asked him for a lot of money, like the same I was making with Michael Jackson, which really pissed me off because Michael Jackson was, he would have 50 to 80,000 people in a stadium every night. Well, Jeff had maybe three to 5,000 people. (laughs) So that's going to be a different paycheck. And so I fired the manager immediately and I, I could have lost the gig easily, easily at that point. And I'm just lucky that he, he stuck it out. And I don't, I mean, it's years ago, so I don't even remember what the pay was, but I was very happy with it. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, Rock and Recycle Music. Hey, it's Jennifer Batten here coming from Santiago, Chile on tour. And I just bought a brand new used guitar a Washburn Parallax from rockandrecyclemusic.com. Super badass place to shop. If you ask me, go get you one. I, I think that is, I think that's such an amazing life experience that you got to have these two very different experiences, but grow so much from both of them. Absolutely. And And what I haven't asked you yet is, What's it like to be one of the only females in your position out on the road? Because uh, on this side of the microphone, I'm typically one of the only females in the room in corporate America. But yeah. no one is following me around with a camera. No one is, you know, no one's recording me other than me recording myself. But you are literally on the life stage 
doing it. Yeah. What does that feel like? You know, with Jeff, well, Jeff and Michael both, they, they had respect for me. So, you know, I, I was aware that it was a pretty unique thing, but with Michael, uh, Prince had already had Wendy and Lisa and that was a big deal. So I thought, okay, the revolution is happening right now and there's going to be a ton of women popping out. And then 15 years go by and crickets, there's hardly anything. But I, I think once everybody had high speed internet, then women could start to see each other popping up around the world and be encouraged. Um, yeah. Back when I first started, uh, guys did not want women in their bands you know, I remember I was, I was trying to get the Ozzy Osbourne audition cause he was auditioning everybody in, in LA at the time. And I remember telling somebody I was trying to get the audition. I got my cassette tape to the right people. And I, I remember the person's vibe. They didn't say anything, but their vibe was like, what are you thinking? You're female. That ain't going to happen. You're a girl. Yeah. yeah. You're a girl. They don't want a girl in their band. And honestly, I would have been the wrong person for the gig, but just give me the audition. Give me a shot, you know. Um, but with with Michael, and especially Jeff, he had a lot of respect. Um, you know, he's a musician's musician. He, he was just the the pinnacle. So I figured if he had respect for me, then I must be a somebody, <laughs> you know. But I will tell you that this was so daunting. I was already crapping myself about can I really fit in this band? Because I, I saw him so far beyond where I was and he was and is that I just didn't know if I could hang. And in fact, he sent me some uh, new material that he wanted to do. And one thing was a duet with uh, Tony Hymas, this piano piece and guitar does not have the range of piano. And it was kind of classical and I was learning it. And every day I was going, Oh man, you hired the wrong girl. (laughs) You know, it was kicking my ass and I got it, but I I couldn't nail what was on piano because it was just beyond the guitar range. Um, So anyway, I I got through it and ended up playing with him. But uh, his manager was driving me down to his house for the first time. And I will never forget, I, I had ridiculous anxiety about it. Although I didn't say a word to anybody about that. And then his manager just quietly says, you know, in the past, the musical director in Jeff's bands has been the keyboard player. And since you're triggering keyboard sounds, you're it. And I, I mean, talk about overload. I was so overwhelmed with that statement. And I'm just quiet going, oh, my fucking God. <laughs> <laughs> and... Honestly, there there was jealousy from the other band members because I, I was in that position. Uh, Jeff would call me with changes that he wanted, and so I'd tell the band and we'd work on it before Jeff came in the next day. And it, you know, it wasn't my choice. It was just that was the job I was given. So deal with it, dude. I think a lot of us can relate to that. Sure, a lot. Can we can all relate to that sentiment? And it's um, it's actually. In a strange way, it's both comforting and aggravating that even at your caliber of traveling all around the world, you still experience that. It's the same as little old me in corporate America in some board in some boardroom. So, like I said, I find it encouraging because we're in the same boat. 
but also aggravating because we're in the same boat. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that the, the stars don't have any problem at all with that. It's other people around them. And interesting. it was much worse with Michael Jackson. His manager, one day I was at rehearsal and there, there was a break. And his manager, this real mafioso guy with a cigar and a ponytail, comes up to me and goes, because you have this gig, I could probably get you into Playboy magazine. And I'm going, you know, what? That what? is not a goal of mine. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was just stunned. I probably was silent, just <laughs> smile and walk away. And then another time, it was even worse. We were at a party somewhere in Europe. And he comes up to me, he looks at my chest, and he goes, you need tits. I'll pay for them. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. That was so offensive. I thought, man, I'm not going to carve a knife like all your Hollywood bimbos. And I mean, no offense to people that really think that's a thing and choose to do that. But yeah, that wasn't my thing. No, because you were there for you were there for the music and your talent. Not you didn't need a pair of boobs. I mean, besides. And a lot of people, a lot of people have gotten really sick from that. You know, bags leak and it's, it's. Carving into your body on purpose. I mean, I've had several surgeries and I don't do that as a first choice. Like, yeah, make me look like Barbie. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I'm so, and I know this can sound really strange and I don't, and I mean, I mean it sincerely. I am so proud of you for not caving into that pressure and staying true to whom you are and that you were strong in your own convictions and your own self-worth. To not, you know, not to fall into that trap that you felt you had to. I mean, that that yeah. takes a lot of self-worth and a self-esteem. And I'm I am grateful that you stood there and stood your ground. Well, you know, I think a lot of women are so dead set on fame at any cost that, you know, that's part of their journey and that that's just what they do. But for me, it was the music. That was my number one driving force. So that probably had something to do with saving me from that. And my upbringing, you know, I didn't grow up in Hollywood. Um, there was there was a German guy. Well, actually, this German guy referred to all Americans, but I'm thinking specifically Hollywood as the plastics. <laughs> I, I, I can do that. I, I can understand that. I can definitely understand that. Yeah. In In your very long career which is still going, by the way. Um, what is the biggest lesson you learned, which is your, also your biggest surprise that you didn't expect to learn? Biggest surprise? Well, um, you know, just, I, I think anytime, and probably everybody in the arts probably goes through this, where you have goals where you see yourself and you want to be there faster than it it is ever going to be for most people. And it can be frustrating. And anytime I felt like that, and it seems like there was always a moment when I was practicing and just so joyous at something that I had conquered, then it just brings me back to earth. And you know, well, that's, it doesn't get better than that. Personal growth. 
And then you lose your way and then you come back and then you lose your way again. And then you come back and do the comparison game, which, which is horrendous. You know, it's making kids commit suicide from Instagram because they don't look like their friends or they don't have the gigs that their friends have. Um, so it's, it's a battle through your whole life. And fortunately for me, um, I often get to the space where I just don't give a fuck. It's just if my, <laughs> if my music is progressing, I, I know how happy that makes me. And I know the therapy that it gives me, how, you know, I can be feeling shitty or just nonplussed and go in the studio and play for a couple hours. And it changes my brain chemistry and heals me. So i it's almost like I have to do it. That's my lifeline. So your passion is your purpose and you get to make a living at it. I mean, yeah. that's the dream. And that's not to say there's there's not a lot of bumps in the road. Uh, there's been plenty. It's been feast and famine for me. I mean, Jesus, when I got the Michael Jackson kid, it was, it was more money than I ever made in my life. And for Christmas that year, my dad gave me a book on finance. It was about that big. And I looked at it and I'm thinking, dude, I know how to spend money. <laughs> <laughs> and I never have learned that lesson. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's the same. I hear that so many times from actors when, you know, they finish a big movie and then they are so insecure because the phone isn't ringing. They think, okay, I did that, but it's over. And there's there's going to be months on end where you just don't get calls and things aren't happening. And you got to be creative and take a left turn, like all of COVID, you know, none of us could play. It was horrifying. And a lot of us got super depressed, but then you got to reboot and go, what can I do in this situation? Well, I can teach. I didn't know what zoom was before lockdown happened. Then I started this seminar series with uh, three other women is what it started out to be. And once a month, and that was my focus. And that got me through COVID. I mean, we all had we all had to find a lifeline during COVID because we all experienced some this something similar at the same time. We may not have been experiencing it exactly the same, but we all had to deal with the same emotions <clears throat> that were coming up for all of us. That what do we do now? What do we do now? Uh, yeah. You every time I email you, you're in a different country, which is so cool. Um, <laughs> What is next for you? Boy, I, I have a little break, which I'm thrilled about. And I, I'm going to be working on new courses for truefire.com, which is one of the world's biggest lesson companies. Uh, so that's going to take me a couple months. I have a secret project that I'm not going to talk about. In May, uh, touring fires up again. Uh, last year, I played with eight different Michael Jackson tribute shows from eight different countries. It was, it's like wacky. I, I've played with a few in the last couple of years, but last last year it just all came together. And it was really hard because they're all, they do a lot of the same songs, but they're in different keys and different forms and they'll do medley. So I really have to do my homework before I take off for any of them. And I got a couple coming up that are back to back. So it's like, I have to have notes on stage. Beat it is in C tonight, not C sharp, you know, because it's <laughs> a train wreck. Um I played last November, I did a three or four week tour with a buddy of mine, John Macaluso, who's a great drummer that played with Ingve Malmsteen. And Niklas Terman, who's a 
he's a guitar player, but he played bass and sang on this tour. And it's the first time I did a trio. And it was so much fun that I'm it's really tedious, but I'm I'm putting a promo video together from those shows to try to get us more work. So um there's a lot of seeds planted in the future. That's what I, I love about your attitude. It, it, first of all, it, it's even though you are this amazing rock star, what you go through is so relatable in <laughs> my own life and probably in many that of the listeners that you're going through the same stuff that we're doing and, and we all are just having to hustle. You know, we're, we're all making it up as we go yeah. along and we all have to hustle. That, that's the life, especially of the creative. It, it's never going to be the same. And uh, that's what keeps us fired up sometimes, too. That's probably where your best inspiration comes from, is yeah. always having to make it new, make it fresh, and, and create something out of nothing. Yeah. That's pretty fantastic. Um, first of all, uh, we are almost at the top of the hour, and I promised you I only wanted an hour of your time. So okay. I want to, first of all, thank you for spending this time with me. I have learned so much. You are extremely inspiring. And like I said, you're also relatable because you go through the same stuff, the same emotions, all of that that I experienced. So it solidifies my thought of, you know, all women all around the world, no matter what you do, who you are, what country you're in, you know, you're sexual orientation, your faith, whatever, we all are going through pretty much the same thing. And you just solidified that thought for me. Um, and I want to thank you for your vulnerability. Mm. What I'd like to do is I want to step back from the mic from just a moment because I want to give you an opportunity just for a moment, direct with the audience, just to leave one last thought of either a life lesson or inspiration that you can leave with them. Yeah, it, it just occurred to me um, because this is guided towards women. I just want to put something out there that even though there's a lot of bumps in the road and a lot of misogyny, just crap that you're going to go through. If you focus on that and feel like a victim, it doesn't serve you at all. And there, there is a higher way to live. And of course you're going to get bummed out by certain things along the way. But if you let it run your life, then it's just going to drag you down into a, a deeper hole. So visualizing that, that things are better if they're, if they're bad. And one thing I'm trying to do right now is wean myself off the news. <laughs> no, it's, it's just like, okay, 4,000 people just died in Turkey. Do I need to know that? Uh, is there something I can do about that? I could not have prevented that. But having that in your mind day in, day out, whether you realize it or not, it's in your subconscious. And if you have problems with anxiety, and I think anybody that's a gig worker does to some degree, it is not going to help you. It's only going to make things worse. So, you know, it, it's easy to say positive thinking, positive thinking, but if you specifically set out to raise your thoughts and raise your vibration, it will serve you much more than playing victim. Thank you for that reminder, because yeah. it, sometimes it's easy for to forget. So I, I appreciate you giving that reminder. There's a lot of a lot of things that you said today that are 
then triggering, oh, yeah, I I, sh- I forgot that. I need to remember that. Um, and I appreciate you being so t- candid and transparent with that. Uh, where can my audience check out your music? Uh, it's on the, all the usual places, iTunes, Spotify, that kind of stuff. Um, I sell what physical CDs I have left from my website, jenniferbatten.com. And that's where all my gigs will be posted as soon as they're confirmed. And there's only a handful right now, but in the next month, there's going to be a lot more for late spring, summer shows. And and I've started, you know, I'm kind of burnt out on travel. So I started a cover band locally so I can stay home more. And so whoever calls July, August, I'm home in Portland, Oregon. So if you want to hear some journey, Toto Van Halen and yes, um, come see my band called full steam. So that's it. That's where I am right now. That's fantastic. Uh, again, thank you for being here with us this week. Um, I cannot thank you enough for your time and for your artistry that you've given us. Uh, it's phenomenal. I actually started listening to your music after I, our first meeting and you're amazing. Oh, thanks you so just, much. You, you just, you just kill it. So thank you for being here. And I want to thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you again next time. This is just the beginning. That's our show. I am so grateful for each and every one of you and your unwavering support and your continued belief in this movement that has become much bigger than me much bigger than just a podcast. It has become this forward momentum that we are all doing together. If you are ready, or you know somebody that is, that is ready to tell your story and share your value with the world, please connect with me. You can reach me at audra at womeninthearena.net. I am so honored and thankful that you will share your story with me and I'll make sure that it is well taken care of. I will never stop thanking each and every one of you, and I cannot wait to talk to you again next week as we share another woman's story and we celebrate her doing extraordinary things in plain sight. We'll see you next time.